0: banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
1: This is Masters
2: in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. Her name is Alison Schrager. And amongst other things, she is the author of a book that I took with me on vacation and absolutely found intriguing. My, My version is just Demolished because I plowed through it on a beach uh, in Turks and Caicos. And really, despite everything going on around me, I kind of ignored it and just worked my way uh, through the book. Uh, I love the title An Economist Walks Into a Brothel, which really has nothing to do with sex and everything to do with finding ways to do risk reward analyses in really unusual places. So whether it's big wave surfing or horse breeding or poker playing, or paparazzi, there are all these unusual um, situations where we don't really think about the risk-reward analysis, but really the details of that have a major impact on how these industries and these individuals progress. And, And once you start looking into that, it changes the way you look at everything from insurance to annuities to hedging to Market-based portfolios, risk permeates everything we do, and most of us just don't give it enough uh, time and thought to recognize the dangers and advantages it potentially uh, can afford us. So if you're at all interested in in fill-in-the-blank, investing, insurance, understanding risk, understanding what happens in a brothel from an economic perspective, I think you're going to find this to be an absolutely fascinating conversation. So with no further ado, my interview with Allison Schrager. This is Masters
1: in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
2: My special guest this week is Alison Schrager. She is an economist and adjunct professor at NYU, a journalist at Quartz, co-founder of Lifecycle Finance Partners, which is a risk advisory firm. She is also the author of An Economist Walks into a Brothel and Other Unexpected Places to Understand Risk. Alison Schrager, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So so let's talk a little bit about your um, background. You describe in the book making a series of what you later called risky career decisions. Not exactly sure what you wanted to do. Your assumption was hey, PhD program in economics, obviously you're going to become a professor. How, how
1: did that work out? Um. Well, in the end, I think it worked out well for me, but the path was a lot rockier than I would have expected. I think like a lot of people, especially in this day and age, I fell into this idea that more education was just better and it would open up all these doors. And most of the time it does. I think that is normally a good bet. And certainly an economics PhD is, is a good thing to have in life. But uh, I had kind of a rocky transition when I finished grad school because I'd invested you know, essentially my whole 20s into learning all these skills and really being cut off from the rest of the world and then realized what I was investing in was this idea of becoming a professor and had this realization as I graduated this was not what I wanted to do at all.
2: So undergrad at en- Enberg, uh yep. PhD at Columbia University, what sort of thesis were you working on there?
1: Um, Weirdly, even when I was like 18, I was always really fascinated by retirement. Uh, So my PhD thesis was on risk in retirement. So Um. it was, I started around 2000. So this is as DC plans had really taken a foothold in the market. And I was doing some work in the UK where they were taking over. So really understanding more deeply the risks in defined contribution versus defined benefit pensions.
2: Hmm. So... Eventually, you come to the realization, hey, I'm not going to be any sort of professor, and then you happen to have a job interview with uh, a world-famous Nobel Prize-winning economist, Robert Merton. What happened with that?
1: Well, I, uh, as I said, I, I, I had this hard realization when I was finishing grad school. I didn't want to be a professor. I didn't want to be a government bureaucrat. All the things you're supposed to do with an economics PhD. So I kind of had this burn it all down, do something new uh, attitude, which also turned out to be helpful for the book. So I was like, I'm going to do something fun. I've just spent my whole 20s while everyone else was partying, solving a math problem. So I went to The Economist, unpaid, because this is early days of web journalism, and right. they they would take people who'd never written before to write for the web back then. And I... Yeah, well, you pay for right? Yeah. So I was just writing web web stuff for the Economist for free with an econ PhD and then someone passed my dissertation along to Bob Merton and it turned out retirement was also his main interest he was working on market solutions to the retirement problem. So
2: so let me interrupt you there and and ask some questions here cuz this is really kind of fascinating. You're wildly overqualified to churn out web-based nonsense where you're not being paid for a website And you know they treat unpaid volunteers not especially Mm -hmm. well, and they have the same respect for their content. Who said, oh, I know, Allison's uh, Ph.D. thesis. Let me give this to Bob. He's busy. He won a Nobel Prize, but he'll like this. How on earth did that come about?
1: Um, A friend of mine who I think had him when he was doing his MBA at Harvard— And because my dissertation was exactly what Bob was doing. Bob was trying to come up with financial models that took the best of defined benefit plans and put them in a defined contribution structure. And Mm -hmm. that turns out, you know, as I said, as much as I said, burn it all down, I always had a good dissertation, which thought about risk in a clever way. Mm -hmm. So once Bob didn't know, I'd sort of hit bottom (laughs) career-wise. You know, it just goes to show where some, you feel like something can feel like it totally blew up. I was right. thinking, I just really messed up here. You know, I just wasted my, all this time. And then my paper ended up in front of him. And he was like, I really want to do this. He called me in. He's like, if you come work with me, I will teach you finance. Let me tell you, when
2: I first was handed a book whose title was An Economist Walks Into a Brothel, I- I'm intrigued. Okay, now— uh, your your thought is they're not going in there as a customer or anything like that. Your thought is what sort of wacky economic data are they gonna be analyzing as an economist looking at the sex trade? It's a mm-hmm. pretty fascinating subject. How did you find your way to Nevada and going to the bunny ranch?
1: So I wrote a story for courts because I'm it's interest, I'm always been interested in risk. Even as a journalist, you know, after I Started working with Bob. I, before I was a macroeconomist, I became, I learned finance. I'm like, everything I knew about the economy it was wrong. <laughs> Risk is a much more rigorous and interesting way to understand the macroeconomy and every economic problem. So I was applying that in sort of this sort of freakonomics y way as a journalist. And I wrote a story about uh, a friend of a friend who was running an online brothel where she, her value add was screening clients. This is, Uh, an illegal operation right so when you work illegally you have to screen your clients otherwise especially these were for submissives specifically so they get they get tied up so they're particularly vulnerable so screening has especially important premium so she was being paid this premium to screen them and i was like well this is pretty cool uh so i wrote the story about it did super well as you can imagine and so i got a call from the bunny ranch saying if you're gonna be writing about brothels you should be writing about us and I was like, well, I don't write about brothels, but uh, this is an interesting call, so I'm going to continue this. Um, and so I was talking to them, and they were, t- I'm like, how does this all work? And they're like, well, the women come in and Every, we don't set prices. They negotiate every transaction. And they, he kind of said like a throwaway thing he said. And I was like, well, that's actually very interesting. So you're telling me you have women who are about 20 years old negotiating with men in their 60s over tens of thousands of dollars. He's like, yeah. And it's interesting you say that because most of them come here not knowing how to negotiate, so we have a negotiation training program.
2: So the Bunny Ranch in Nevada reaches out to you and says, hey, if you want to have a conversation about a brothel, and about risk and analyzing numbers. Come talk to us. What was your thought process when you got this phone call?
1: Well, at first I was like, this isn't my thing. This isn't what I'm like known for. I'm a retirement economist. But when they said the thing about we have a negotiation training program, which is something I struggle with too. Like you would think a car
2: dealership has a negotiating training program, not a brothel.
1: Or a sales job on Wall Street, you know. They and they're like, well, and they even said that line: the women here don't know their value, so we teach them to know their value and to ask for enough. And I was like, well, I could use that. So I talked my editor at Quartz to sending me there to go through their negotiation training program.
2: Was the immediate reaction: this is a great story. Oh
1: yeah, they send a video crew.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right, so they were they were pretty hip that. Hey, this is funky and on un- you. This was freaky before Freakonomics, wasn't this?
1: Freakonomics was already out, but it, oh, okay. it, it took it to another level because I don't think Steve Levitt spent a lot of time in brothels. No, but.
2: he focused on young drug dealers in the inner city yeah. and other similarly freaky stuff, but this is like right up his alley for sure. So you get to the Bunny Ranch. How receptive were the women to speaking to you about all these sorts of economic-related Um, issues of of salary and compensation and negotiation.
1: In the beginning, some some were very wary. Some were very open. uh, But once you get talking to them, they open up. Because I think uh, a lot of people go there and they don't really take them seriously as businesswomen. Okay. uh, Dennis, when he was alive.
2: This is the guy who was running the Bunny Ranch?
1: Yes. uh, Really had a lot of good business training going on. And the women there are great businesswomen and they're proud of what they know. Mm -hmm. So once you get them talking about that, they do open up because this is a special skill a lot of them have learned and a skill, honestly, I think most people could learn on their jobs and they don't.
2: So how to value the worth of your own work product relative to the marketplace and relative to customer on the other side of the desk from
1: you? And how to ask for it, how to feel comfortable, especially it's an interesting negotiation because you have to, negotiation can be very fraught. Right. And afterward, you're going to have this very intimate encounter with this person. Right. So making that transition, which is, I mean, a more exaggerated version. Silicon of,
2: Valley calls that the pivot. Yeah.
1: It's a more exaggerated version of what we all do, right? Like we have to negotiate with someone, then we have to work with them. Right. So this is just that on steroids.
2: Huh. And, and so what is the secret? What did they do that's somewhat different than what uh, – or, or what did they teach you that you didn't know going into this?
1: I think I always saw negotiation as very adversarial, and what I learned is how to make it not so, how to just put Put a bunch of things out there, which apparently is a negotiation technique.
2: Here's Here's a menu, choose A, B, or C. Yeah. That's really interesting.
1: And therefore, then it's not adversarial. It's just, hey, you know, everyone feels like they're getting what they want. I'm customizing this experience for you. Right. So when I was there, I learned a lot about pricing, sex pricing. And something that fascinated me was how much more they could charge than the illegal market.
2: And now the assumption is, from the John's point of view, Mm -hmm. they're going into a place where they know the workers have been tested for STDs. Mm -hmm. They know they're not going to get mugged or ripped off. They know they're not... Going to get arrested, that should be worth some sort of premium, shouldn't it?
1: I would never thought of it that way before, but that was what <clears throat> I said, Always on the lookout for risk,
2: right? Fascinated
1: me because I mean the premium is large. When I went, I went back to the brothel for bookwork and surveyed a lot of the women on their uh, transactions, and then it just turned out that this economist I knew. Uh, Scraped all the data from the erotic review, which is Yelp for illegal sex work. Right. So I I, I had 1.2 million illegal sex transactions. Right. So I had really good data. That's a
2: robust data set. Yeah. So I was kind of surprised in reading that chapter, that section of the book. The Bunny Ranch, to go to the Bunny Ranch, it's a couple of thousand dollars per um, experience. I don't know what to call it.
1: The median price I found was $1,400 an hour. That's a lot of money. Yeah, uh, it it you know, especially if you just uh, hire a woman online, even for escorting, which is more high end. I think equivalent to what you get at the Bunny Ranch is three or four hundred dollars an hour. That's all. Yeah, and you don't have to go to Nevada.
2: Yeah, but then the risk is four hundred dollars. But you might get arrested. You might get robbed. You might who knows. You might get killed. So it's worth a premium, one would argue, mm-hmm. and you effectively do that. In An Economist Walks Into a Brothel, uh, that what you're paying is a, you're paying an insurance premium to eliminate all of the risks associated with illegal uh, sex for hire transactions.
1: And on the other side, too, because you think these women, they're getting so much money, but they're really not.
2: Now, what's the payout to the woman relative to average, let's call it $1,500 mm-hmm. average They're getting what you wrote about half goes to them.
1: Well, not even half goes to the brothel. So they have to give 50 percent of their cut to the brothel. Right. And then uh, they're legal sex workers. Right. So they're 1099 employees. So. So
2: So there's (laughs) self-employment tax. Got to cover that.
1: And I mean, these are high earners. Uh, They're making, you know, probably at least 100 grand a year. Right. So, I mean, I a lot of them don't live in Nevada, so they might have state income taxes on top of it all. So we're talking 30%, right. 40%. So do they do from- an
2: IRA or a KEO? They have to have some sort of retirement plan of set do. up? A of do.
1: Dennis had really, had really good financial planners coming in and give them right. very good financial literacy. Like I was talking to these women who came from households where no one had a bank account. They're like, I didn't even know right. what a credit score was. And then they're telling me, oh yeah, my IRA is on in index funds. You know, why pay the fees for active?
2: That's just that's just hilarious. I have a, I have a million... A million horrific puns, and I'm not going to touch a single one of them. Wait, so are you saying they were passive investors, not active? Is that, is that what you're saying? T- they were indexers, right? Yeah, they're,
1: they're all indexers. That's hilarious. That's
2: really, <laughs> that's really hilarious. So what was the single most surprising thing that you came away from the bunny ranch with having interviewed all these professional legal sex workers?
1: The most surprising thing, I mean, I know it sounds almost patronizing, and I knew they'd be smart, but I was shocked at how much I learned from them about business, about negotiation and about risk.
2: So more than just smart, savvy. Very savvy. Let's talk a little bit about risk, because I think different people think of risk differently. How how can you define what risk is for the average person?
1: Well, I think of risk... I think of it as an estimate of all the different things that could happen and how probable they are. As I said, it's a very technical definition.
2: Let me ask you the same question a little bit differently then. Since you run a firm Mm. who's got the words life cycle Mm. in its name, how does risk change over the course of a person's lifetime? Well, um, you have career risk, you have academic risk, you have retirement risk. I mean, there has to be a million different points in one's life where the risks that are presented to you are very different with different
1: ramifications. Totally, and how we are able to deal with risk and understand risk and how risk averse we are can also change over our life cycle, which makes it even more complicated. you know, I, there's all this evidence about behavioral biases, but there's also evidence as people get older, those biases tend to be less prevalent.
2: Really, so is it that we get a little wiser with age or it just matters less?
1: we get a little wiser with age, there's experience that just as well experience really changes how you perceive risk. Like once you've seen things blow up for you a couple times.
2: Suddenly you become a little more risk averse or a little more aware of the probabilities you face.
1: Or take time to hedge or insure when you take risks. Ah, let's talk
2: about that because you have a few chapters in the book on the differences between insurance and hedging. So let's talk a little about hedging, Mm -hmm. whether you're referring to a market perspective or any other perspective, what is hedging and what should the average person use it for?
1: I think of hedging, and is this is a distinction that a lot of people don't, I think, isn't often made very clearly. In fact, I had lunch with the CEO of an insurance firm who even he kept, we kept messing up insurance and hedging. So it's, it's a very subtle but important difference. But,
2: and you make it clear, they're two very distinct things.
1: They are. And if you um, draw a picture of what they mean in, uh, on a graph, it's very clear but mm-hmm. intuitively it's a very hard difference. So I think of hedging as you just take less risk. So in a basic finance world, that would be you have a risky asset and you have a risk-free asset. Right. So, so hedging is just putting more of your portfolio in the risk-free asset.
2: The typical 60-40 stock and bond portfolio, you're not so much hedging your stocks as you're removing some risk and putting it into much lower risk fixed income.
1: Exactly, so you're, you're hedging your portfolio balance. So, from long to low.
2: So I've always thought of, of hedging as, I'm willing to give up some upside mm-hmm. and in exchange um, reduce my downside. That's exactly it. Okay. So
1: now, so if you is it if you, instead of 60-40, you do 50-50, that's less upside if stocks do well, right. but also less downside risk if stocks crash.
2: Or conversely, I'll own XYZ stock and I'll marry a put to it, mm-hmm. and that protects, it's, it costs me something, Cost me a couple of percent, but hey, if the stock falls out of bed, the put should cover some percentage of uh, most of that downside.
1: Yeah, though I usually think of puts as like insurance. A little bit
2: more insurance, as I was saying. Yeah. So, so now let's talk about insurance. How do you think of insurance? What what does purpose does insurance
1: serve? So insurance is a little different. So rather than giving up, you know upside, what you're doing is you're paying someone a fee. So you give up that amount of upside, but it's a set amount and you eliminate downside risk.
2: So a predetermined cost mm-hmm. and what you're purchasing is putting that risk or eliminating that risk from yourself, putting it onto someone else.
1: In a specific state of the world. Yeah. So it's okay. insurance, which is if if X happens, if this if this stock goes above the strike price, then I get something.
2: So I've never owned a car Uh where I did not have, at one point in the ownership of that car, uh, some piece of gravel or rock come up on our local crappy highways here in New York and either ding or crack the windshield. So once I could start affording it, I always get glass insurance on the car, and I have replaced literally every single windshield Mm -hmm. I've ever owned. Um, Is that a good use of, of insurance, or am I just- their profits and wasting money
1: sounds like it I mean if you're, if you''re if you're claiming it
2: well but you know a car you have three four five years at mm-hmm. least um, and you're paying whatever it is a hundred bucks uh, the I guess what I'm really paying for is hey I don't have, have to worry about whether or not I break a window mm-hmm. somebody else somebody else is responsible for that is that a fair definition of insurance even though you're paying a fixed amount that stress and worry goes away
1: exactly because now the stress of of breaking the window is on the insurance company. I mean, you have to still go through the rigmarole of replacing it, but the financial risk is borne by someone else. So let's
2: talk a little bit about the book and some of the other things um, you describe outside of the Bunny Ranch. Uh, you spoke to a number of poker players who mm-hmm. had some kind of surprising statistic. The the one player whose name escapes me, but was notorious for having Phil these- Hummuth? Yes, for having these sort of uh, hissy fits- <laughs> when he either wasn't happy with his own play or what have you, he said he should really only be playing a very small percentage of hands. And I would have guessed 40%, mm-hmm. 20%, 30%. What percentage does he play? I believe it's 12%. 12%. That's an one out of eight hands. So seven out of eight hands he's not participating in.
1: Yeah, and there's a lot of poker terminology, which is new for me because I'm not a player, and they call that patient
2: <laughs> I don't know if that's specific to poker, but you would think if you're passing on seven out of eight hands, there's a lot of patience with that.
1: Especially for someone who struck me as so volatile and out of control.
2: Now, is, how much of that is real, and how much of that is just to get into the heads of the other players?
1: I think it's a combination of both. I think that's his natural temperament, and mm-hmm. he's noticed it's also an asset.
2: So in the beginning, it wasn't an asset. It was a mm-hmm. bit of a problem for him. How did he manage to deal with that risk and turn it into a, a positive.
1: Well, he tells stories of just being so emotionally overwhelmed by trying to keep him in check, he would pass out. But when you really delve into it, you realize, you know, this is the classic behavioral bias we call loss aversion, uh-huh. which is when you're losing, you know, you hate, you hate losses so much more than you value gains that you'll take, double down and take extra risk to avoid a loss, And so this is often shows up a lot in poker and why people play too many hands. So what he has to do is anyway, even though he's down, is still not play the hands. So he has to stay rational and like overcome this bias. And what I found is behind the scenes, he's doing all these things. So he feels like there's less at stake so Uh he can stay more rational. He does things like he gets what he calls staked which is he, someone
2: else is an investor in him and takes a percentage of the winnings exactly
1: so anyway he claims to be incredibly wealthy um he only puts in like ten thousand dollars of his own money in any poker tournament right the other thing he does so it's effectively hedging and the other thing he does is he sort of gets this weird insurance which is when he's in the in a in a major game and he takes the other player aside and they cut these little back deals which like,
2: is apparently allowed and and so in other words some of these players tournaments are winner takes all mm-hmm. and if you come in second you get nothing. Mm-hmm. So in one one of these tournaments he pulled someone aside and said, "Here's a deal. Let's agree to split a um, million dollars each of the purse mm-hmm. and whoever wins gets the balance." Yeah. So so if you lose you take half a million and I think it was like 2.2 million mm-hmm. something like that for the winner, so there's a little bit of a hedge there as well.
1: Yeah. So he does all these things to take a little risk off the table, and that keeps him rational.
2: What about a, the concept of a player who, after they lose a few hands, instead of being patient, mm-hmm. has a tendency to try and get back to break even? There's mm-hmm. something about that concept of, I got to get back to bre- break even. Stock traders do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Hey, I know this stock is a piece of junk, but dear Lord, if I get back to break even, I swear I'll sell. That sort of attitude. Poker players uh, do the same thing.
1: They do, um, but the successful ones are the ones – this is what I was saying about there's evidence that as you get older and wiser, you are less prey to these behavioral issues. And uh, I think it's John List is this economist who studies loss aversion, how it impacts behavior. Because uh, the break-even effect is just sort of a corollary of loss aversion, which is huh. when you're down, you're so determined to win back so you don't experience a loss, you double down and take extra risk, risk you would have never taken if you were up.
2: It seems almost opposite of risk aversion. You're embracing so much risk, I guess, to try and recover from that loss.
1: Only when you're down. And this is the interesting, you know, sort of um, deviation from what economists normally think is when you're down, you'll take that extra risk to get back.
2: So tell us a little bit about how we should be thinking about risk in the stock market.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, actually, I mean, my background to approach risk is from financial economics, which is the study of the stock market. I think in a lot of ways, the stock market's the perfect place to think about risk because you just have so much data. Mm-hmm. And what financial markets are doing is just finding ways to price and move risk around. So I think anyone who is in the stock market is someone who's naturally thinking about risk all the time.
2: Huh? And and we're making more data every day, don't we?
1: Yeah, I think again, you you do get people who get away from you know. As I said, if they're down, they like you know, there's all this evidence that people won't sell losers, but they'll sell winners. And you know how you know that's usually not a good idea. If a stock's going down, it might probably will keep going down. As opposed to you know, why would you sell your winners and keep a loser? But that's supposed to be some version of loss aversion. People think
2: so. There was a study that had come out towards the end of 2018 that had looked at portfolio managers. And rather than compare them to a benchmark, what they did instead was, let's, instead of selling what the portfolio manager Mm -hmm. sold, we're going to randomly sell anything else from their portfolio Mm -hmm. and then compare and see how they did. And it turned out that random sales outperformed Mm -hmm. manager sales by 100 basis points over the next year. And when they looked at what was being sold, they found two broad categories that accounted for most of the underperformance. Mm. One is stocks that had gone up a lot mm. and therefore were benefiting from momentum. Managers had a tendency to sell those, but also stocks that had collapsed a lot, mm. rather than selling them when they were small losers, they waited till they were giant losers mm. and effectively had become deep value plays uh, and they were selling them. And those two categories were um, were determined to be the behavioral errors that were, were driving portfolio losses. So hold that aside, let's let's think of, of the stock market in terms of individual investors embracing of risk. Are most people overly invested in the stock market and they embracing too much risk? Or do you perceive the, agile, the do you perceive risk amongst individual investors as just not taking enough of it, especially in the early stages of a market? and not embracing it until the very latter stages of the market?
1: I think it's hard to say. I mean, the right stock allocation really depends on an individual and where they are in their life cycle. Mm -hmm. Um, I think people don't appreciate, a lot of people don't appreciate how risky the stock market is. Like, my mother is nearing retirement, and she expects her portfolio to, like, double every year. And I'm like, sure, but you're going to have to take on a lot of risk for that to happen. Right. And she so, doesn't seem to internalize that if you want more return, that comes with something. And you know, and stocks are a great investment. They're a great way, especially an index fund, to get uh, risk exposure cheaply and efficiently. Right. But you know, there if you know, there's no guarantees.
2: So we notice that when housing markets are booming, people have the same overly optimistic expectations about how fast their mm-hmm. home prices are appreciating. Uh, I'm assuming your mom is not a bit. Big Bitcoin investor. Um, why does she think her stocks, her portfolio should double every year given long term returns between 8 and
1: 10%? Well, to some degree, it's also, you know, errors in how we perceive risk. Mm. I mean, I think people often in, so assume there's serial correlation where there is none. Mm-hmm. so you know if the, if housing prices have gone up the last 20 years people assume they'll stay doing that I think people also make that assumption around interest rates that you know they've been nothing but go down for the last 30 years right. so I although it's questionable if they can keep doing that because how negative can yields get
2: so this was kind of an interesting um, aspect of the book that resonated with me personally because we're always trying to teach clients to think about portfolios in terms of a way that's easily understandable. Mm -hmm. And if you say to somebody, hey, there's a 70 or here, here, there's a lot of software Mm -hmm. that can project you out to retirement. There's a 95% probability that you'll hit your retirement goals, Mm -hmm. assuming inflation stays under 4% and you continue making your regular contributions. I don't know what a 95% confidence interval does for most people. Mm-hmm. But if if you were to say to them, hey, in 19 out of 20 situations, we can show you, you'll hit your target goals. It's only one out of 20 that you don't make it. Why is that so much easier to understand than percentile?
1: Yeah. I'm not a psychologist, but the research psychologist I talked to has said just something about the way our brains are programmed is frequencies just resonate with us more. We so, are.
2: So 19 out of 20 is a better to phrase than 95%.
1: Yeah, and it makes a big difference because we are programmed as humans. We're not like complete like it's supposed to be disasters with risk. Risk is something that humans have been facing, you know, as long as we've been on the earth. But, you know, probabilities are a fairly modern invention. They only really came along in the Renaissance with a lot of sort of brainy people.
2: Right, Bernoulli and a whole run of different folks. Yeah, and
1: Pascal and all these people. So, I mean, it's not surprising that we aren't just born having this natural intuitive sense of probabilities. I mean, we both work in this area all the time, and they often don't mean that much to me either.
0: You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? At QuickBooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. So so
2: for the average person, how best should we quantify risk?
0: Well,
1: you want to... um I say convert it. If you're thinking, except when I defined risk to you and I was like, it's all the things that you can measure happening and how probable they are, that is a probability distribution. Mm-hmm. So a whole distribution of things that aren't intuitive to us. Um, so, I mean, part of Italy is sort of getting more comfortable with those concepts, but it's also when you think of probabilities, converting them to frequencies.
2: The book was really interesting. It it reads really well. It's sort of like, like as I started reading it, I immediately... um. Uh, thought of a, of Against the Gods because it's also so risk-focused. Func- but from a historical perspective, this is really a 21st century perspective on, on risk.
1: I love Against the Gods. It was my favorite book. Oh, and I I was actually partially inspired by that because as much as I love it, I wouldn't say everyone wants to read it. I mean, it's- Oh, a, no,
2: everybody should read that book. It's amazing.
1: Everyone should, but not a lot of people will. I mean, it is dense.
2: Um. He is a very detailed writer and every page is filled with lots and lots of stuff, which is why, P.S., if you go back and reread it 20 years mm-hmm. later, it's still fresh. And I mean, that is a masterwork.
1: It's beautiful. I mean, I love everything about that book. And I also love Capital Ideas. I, I like his everything he's done. But, you know, your mom's probably. Peter Bernstein. Yeah. You're talking about. You know, your mom's probably not going to read it. And. I felt like everyone needs to know what's in against the gods, and that's partially what inspired this book. Is I wanted to take those ideas that were so resonant, and I felt everyone needed to understand and make them accessible to an even broader audience. So
2: obviously, the whole bunny ranch brothel mm-hmm. section is hilarious and must have been a ton of fun to do. Um, what else did you do in your research that was kind of fun and and surprising?
1: It was all fun and surprising. I had. I had a, I mean, I was afraid to write a book for a long time because my dissertation was such a horrible slog.
2: See, I think of my book as as my PhD dissertation, and it was a horrible slog.
1: I think maybe you have to do that first big research project; just has to be horrible, right? Uh, so I was like, if I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna have a lot of fun, which was the other way I wanted to approach the book. So I just was like, I'm gonna have all these adventures. It's an excuse to go places. I went to a risk conference for big wave surfers in Hawaii.
2: Right, that was fa- whole fascinating segment the guys who invented jet skiing their way onto 80 foot waves that before you couldn't even get on onto a 50 foot wave. Mm-hmm. You just weren't able to get out there fast enough. Um, what was that like? You spoke to some really interesting, big surf names.
1: Yeah. And you know, they have the this regular conference where they talk about risk and it's like going to a pension risk conference. So though everyone's you know, better looking, <laughs> right? Everyone's tanner. tan and blonde, right? <laughs> yeah. Like I was in the worst shape in the room. Um, but, they, but you know, it is a it is a conference where they're very thoughtful about risk and debating, uh, you know, regulatory function and who bears the responsibility of risk when your behavior impacts other people. And, you know, it was as intellectual discussion as I've seen anywhere. And the guy who I profile, uh, Brian Kulana, is the one who brought jet skis to big wave surfing. And much like a lot of financial derivatives, initially it's supposed to be insurance. Right. But as you mentioned, you can also use them to lever up and take on more risk and take even bigger waves. Because anything that can reduce risk can also be flipped around to exacerbate risk. We
2: we see a plateauing and even an increase in the annual automobile fatality rates. Mm-hmm. And the discussion in your book and in elsewhere has been, well, how much of the confidence that people feel mm-hmm. about airbags and crumple zones and, and anti-lock brakes is leading them to drive faster and engage in more dangerous behavior without these safety provisions. What what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that is I felt like an important thing to include in any book on risk telling you how to how there's all these tools that can reduce your risk is then you have to be mindful of not feeling so safe that you can then go and take whatever risks you want because nothing makes the world truly risk-free. You know, we're all risk is all still an estimate of something that's immeasurable. So you know, and you're you're basing your risk strategy on something, you know, it's better than doing nothing. Just because it's not perfect doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, but you also have to be aware of the limitations. So even if you have every safety device in the world and you're going to surf an 80-foot wave, it's still not going to be safe. There's nothing to make that risk-free. And
2: and you specifically refer to a number of big-name surfers who died even after or perhaps because of some of these safety innovations being brought in
1: yeah and when i went to the big wave surf risk conference you know they every innovation resurfaces this issue initially it was leashes um because
2: everybody hated when they first came out
1: totally because i i don't know anything about surfing and i've never done it but apparently before there were leashes if you wiped out you lost your board and you had to swim to shore and that could be maybe 20 miles so you think they were like. Amazing swimmers. Now right. you can be a pretty mediocre swimmer and still surf the Right. You're
2: sending people out who really, if they get into trouble, can't swim a half mile back to shore.
1: Yeah. And then it was worse with jet skis because now you can have a jet ski, like you know, push you not only in an 80-foot wave, but if you only belong in a 5-foot wave, now you can go on a 20-foot wave. Right. And you pose risk to other people when that happens, if you need to be rescued. And now the big debate is on something called uh, these inflatable vests.
2: Right. When you go under and they don't always inflate. Yeah. But it gives people a sense that, all right, I'm okay. I could do anything now.
1: Yeah. And so this, because they're new and just starting to be sold, I think I mentioned Greg Long, this famous surfer, whose inflatable vest didn't open. That was, I think he, he had a sort of an early version. But now they're being widely sold. And this is really tearing up the surf community of who should be allowed to buy these. Is it irresponsible to allow anyone to have these vests?
2: So in other words, we don't want to give people a false sense of confidence, send down an amateur with no skills and no minimal swimming ability out into a dangerous area, and they feel because they have a, this inflatable vest that they can surf with the big boys, so to speak.
1: But then the flip side of that is what? this is a potentially life-saving piece of technology. Are you going to deny people buying it? I mean, it's there aren't easy answers to this, which is why I think it's such a such debate. But, you know, if you go to a finance conference and you de- debate systemic risk, there are no easy answers there either.
2: What What else do you recall from your research that was, um, if not quite as buff, um, really interesting and surprising? Because you cover a lot of ground in the book.
1: I think horse breeding. Um, that was
2: kind of fascinating also.
1: Yeah. I didn't. Again, I, I kind of went after things I didn't really have much knowledge of before. Um, and I've never been like a horsey person. I wasn't like one of these little girls who rode horses. Uh, uh, I was. <laughs> so uh, I didn't realize that af- after 1986, the tax reform changed the whole dynamics of horse breeding, the economics of horse breeding.
2: And, and all sorts of other tax shelters. These things had been devised yeah. as a way to hide money from Uncle Sam. And suddenly now they have to stand on their own feet. They can't just be a faux investment.
1: Exactly. So the fact that there's less return to long-term capital gains and they want to realize the returns from their risk earlier means now that everyone sells a horse after when it's one-year-old, when they don't have complete information about how good a racer it's going to be, the only information you have is who its parents are. So this has led to this increase in inbreeding.
2: So we have all these horses that are
1: sprinters,
2: not long-distance runners, because that's the first thing that'll show and that'll help sell a one-year-old horse. It seems like the incentives- are kind of weird and not properly aligned.
1: No, because what you really want is you want a horse. Well, actually, the real money in horses is not winning races. It's from um, the breeding, the stud fees. But you know, a good race career is necessary for that. But none of those things are necessarily correlated with the... There's been studies on this, on the prices that you sell for as a year old yearling.
2: So as I was reading through the whole horse section, and I rode in college, so I was kind of fascinated by that. And I'm not a big fan of of horse racing and mm-hmm. betting, but, but I enjoy riding. Um, I was reminded of a book I read a hundred years ago by, uh, William Goldman, who was the s- screenwriter for Butch casting and a Sundance kid and he, princess bride and marathon man H- his screen lists are, um, insane. And his book was called adventures in the screen trade, but a quote of his that I've used repeatedly when writing about markets is Nobody Knows Anything. Mm -hmm. And he refers to all the studios that passed on Star Wars, all the studios that wanted nothing to do with Raiders of the Lost Ark. And he uses example after example after example of these people who are supposed to be in the film industry and they're throwing darts. And I'm reading your Mm write-up about the various horses that later go on to storied career that were picked up for pennies Mm because nobody recognized their value. And all of these very storied stud married to uh, these mares who were great runners and the horses, nobody, they don't win anything. They don't. So is it the same sort of situation when it comes to horse breeding? Nobody knows anything.
1: Well, I think it's that the incentives are kind of are off. Uh So, you know, what, People, when they breed a horse, they're looking for something that's going to sell after one year, which is very different from a horse that's going to win a Kentucky Derby. You,
2: you would think that there's so much money in winning these big races that at least some subsection of the breeding community would say, hey, if you want to buy a horse to sell in a year, don't come to us. We're trying to breed triple crown competitive mm-hmm. racers.
1: How come that hasn't happened? Well, to some degree, you're right that it is just impossible to know. I mean, you're getting more information now with technology because you're able to do the genetic profiling of the horses, uh, which gives you some information. Like you can tell, you know, I guess the horses that are best suited for like the Kentucky Derby or sort of these hybrid, half sprinter, half distance runners, and you can test for that. Right. Uh, You also
2: reference, um, and there's a really fascinating story. I'm trying to remember where I saw it about the size of one of the ventricles in the horse's heart. Yeah. You reference your. They're looking for horses with not metaphysical mm-hmm. that horse has heart but genuine larger cardiac pumps
1: yeah although you have to be careful because every you know horse it's like everything to be like a racer sort of this freakish combination of factors have to come together it's like being a nobel prize winning supermodel it's like you just need all these <laughs> genetic components and perfect alignment um that that's the uh, i'm sure
2: it's an urban Myth, but the Einstein Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. back and forth. You may not get the qualities you want from each uh, of the sires of the of the horse.
1: Yeah, you may get the worst qualities of both. So you, you know if you uh I think it was one guy who explained to me he's like getting like that perfect heart in the wrong um, horse could be like having a mention of Ferrari and a Subaru. Right. <laughs> So it, it's really hard to predict. So this is why that chapter is about, about modern portfolio theory. Right. By sort of, the way, that, that is the
2: Subaru, <laughs> Subaru WRX. They've done that, and it's been a very successful car. Uh, I, I don't know anything about cars. <laughs> so I guess you should... <laughs> so, so. But that was, really, that was really a fascinating discussion, and I, I, I really enjoyed that. Last question about the book. Anything else sort of stood out as, wow, that was really weird and unusual that I was not expecting?
1: You know, there was every chapter sort of, I guess, had those moments. I mean, there was certainly when uh, the time I spent following around the paparazzi. Where I'm like, also a fascinating story. like, this is weird. You know? I, I was telling someone to say, you know, as I'm like crouching behind a garbage can waiting for Alec Baldwin, I'm like, "This is just not what I expected when I went <laughs> to grad school, you know, to, to end up here of all places." But, you know, again, they also have a fascinating risk story that's going on behind the scenes you would never know, because, as you can imagine, they face just crazy amounts of idiosyncratic risk. At the risk that you're going to get that one money shot in any one day is so large. They have to form these complex alliances to share tips and sometimes royalties. It's Especially it's pooling, so you're getting rid of your idiosyncratic risk. But because all the money in celebrity photography is from getting an exclusive, they also have this incentive to always cheat. So these alliances are inherently very unstable. So they're always reforming and breaking up these alliances so they all hate each other. So this is something you see the paparazzi on the street. And you're like, this is a much more interesting story that's going on with this this lineup of paparazzi than you would ever know.
2: The, then the paparazzi are more interesting than catching a celebrity take their kid out for ice cream.
1: Yeah, they'd always be surprised because you'd wait for these celebrities for like six or eight hours, and after like maybe an hour or two, I'll just get bored, and I'm like, well, I've had a good story here. I'm gonna go home, and they'd be shocked. They're like, but Gigi has an yet. I'm like, well, I'm here for the you, the
2: supermodel Gigi who was friends with somebody else, one of the Kendall Kardashians, Jenner. or yeah. Right. That That's how suddenly she blew up on, on Instagram.
1: Yeah. Well, the celebrities who do well with the paparazzi also play the game with them.
2: Huh. Quite interesting. You, you also have been writing regularly on Vox for some time. Uh, of course. And some of the columns you've done sort of tangentially involve risk in surprising ways. Mm-hmm. So... Everybody today is focused on the Amazon HQ2 disaster Mm -hmm. that blew up uh, earlier this year, Um, but but you looked at it from the context of the U.S. has a talent problem and that presents a risk to corporations. Explain that.
1: Well, so this is the Richard Florida argument that you need like you know any way you think anyone would want to work for Amazon, they still it's the the. The competition for sort of really good talent is still very stiff and it is does occur globally.
2: And we're talking about engineers and programmers, not necessarily the serfs, that they have enslaved in their in their warehouses. Yeah,
1: on the high-skill tech workers. I mean, they're kings of the labor market. Right. And they compete a lot for it, which is one of the reasons why Amazon probably wanted to come to New York. It wasn't just the tax incentives. It was that you could get talent who wanted to move here. It's really hard to get a cluster of talented young people to want to move to uh, the middle of the country,
2: and that's why Brooklyn is so hot these
1: days, yeah, well, and you can see why, because if you are talented, I mean, like human capital, you know, is something you have to work towards your whole career. You don't just go to Harvard and then you're just set for life. You have to manage a network. You have to keep your skills sharp. And that's why you want to be around and not just be limited to your own company, be around other people in talent companies. That way you keep your skills fresh. You have the option of changing jobs. That's always a very valuable option. I mean, if if Amazon moved to a place where there were no other good jobs, you're kind of stuck at Amazon and you give up the option of job switching. Right. That's You have to compensate people for that.
2: Company towns are problematic for that reason.
1: Yeah. I mean, it worked before when you had people who are more middle skill and also... Back before when you had tech, technology was such before where the skills you would learn would be very idiosyncratic to the company you worked for.
2: And now they're very transferable.
1: Exactly. So if you want to maintain competitive competitively in the labor market, you have to be part of sort of these clusters of people that allow you to move around.
2: And, and Google announced they're doubling their New York workforce from 7,000 to 14,000. Mm-hmm. Apple has dramatically expanded its presence. So if you're an Amazon worker theoretically in New York, they're competing for your skills with some of the biggest companies in the world.
1: Yeah, but, and, and you know, they don't like that. I used to work for a company that was far outside my cluster and they kept trying to get me to move there. And I'm like, but you're asking me to give up a very valuable option. You're going to have to compensate me for it. That never really resonated with them. But um, it seems counterintuitive that Amazon would want to be close to their job competition, but it's also what they need to do to attract talent.
2: It's why cities haven't disappeared, despite the best predictions of people half a century ago. What about, I thought this was an interesting headline, what is the real reason people regret not saving more?
1: Risk. So, you know, people think about saving as something that they're going to, you know, often for something that's going to happen in the future that they want to do. But when they looked at people at the end of their life or in retirement, the reason why they think they wish had more money, they don't wish they could have gone on better vacations when they retired. They wish they could have a better lifestyle. It was, I didn't realize that divorce would blow all my savings. Right. It's not
2: a luxury goal. It's a, hey, things happen that are just unexpected, and I failed to plan for that.
1: Yeah. And people, I mean, the like $400 for emergency saving figure is a little controversial, but I don't think it is a stretch to say people really don't make emergency savings enough of a priority.
2: Right. Uh, uh, that's pretty fair. Um, let's talk about charities. Mm -hmm. What's the best way to get people to donate to charity?
1: So I think it was John List, who I mentioned earlier, did a study Mm -hmm. of, uh, the, of Alaska. You know, Alaska is just ripe for a lot of economic studies because they get the dividend payment
2: from the, from all the oil reserves that they're selling to or licensing and leasing out to the big public oil companies.
1: Yeah. So they have a program where you can give some of that money to charity. And they had they did oh, a study really? where you they, they they came with a card and one said, you know, warm your heart, the other is like improve Alaska and the other just was nothing. And they found the warm the heart group donated the most and were most likely to donate.
2: So in other words, they made the charitable donation about the person as opposed to the recipient. Exactly. So appeal appeal to ego. So over the past year or two, we've gone through this giant me too movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that amongst my colleagues, we've had debates about what do you do with an artist, uh, who turns out to be a less than, Mm. um, nice guy. Uh, and the Michael Jackson HBO documentary Mm. just came out. I have yet to see it, but I know Michael Jackson fans are kind of split. Some are defending him and others are a little bereft. I was always a big fan of Louis CK. Not happy Mm. with, with what he did. Go down the list, uh, you know it ranges from uh, offensive to criminal and everything in between. You raise the question: What do you do when a brilliant economist is accused of sexually harassing his research assistants? So, what's the solution?
1: Well, I I don't know because the thing about I was writing about Roland Fire who's been accused but not found guilty. Um, but is, there,
2: he's been accused by a
1: number of his yes. research assistants. Some of
2: whom have credibly claimed that he thwarted their careers for their refusing to succumb to his charms.
1: So, which is horrible. Which is a terrible way to say it. This is terrible. But, and in his, what he always defended himself with, and this is a valid point, although doesn't excuse his behavior in any way, is I do research that's socially critical. Right. Like he was the economist who was leading the charge of understanding why a lot of minority students don't do well in school. So this it's is...
2: important, but what does it have to do with whether or not he's a, a pig?
1: So here's the question is, if someone's doing research that's socially important, or suppose they're on the verge of a cure for cancer and we find out they're a pig, you know do we should they still have a career, You know, if there's all these other positive externalities for society?
2: I could so you just had the bishop six hmm? years prison sentence in Australia, you could see throughout history that the powerful will say, look, there have been some bad behavior, Mm -hmm. but we're literally doing God's work, and therefore we should be exempt from this. Um, uh, You know, uh, pick a person. Um, John Lennon Mm -hmm. uh, was supposed to be a bit of a hard ass, Mm -hmm. and you you don't want to go through the history of literature to find out how big a jerk half the writers out there are. If we, and then artists and and paintings and Mm -hmm. things like that, if we're going to have a moral purity test on that stuff, your museums will be empty and there'll be nothing on the airwaves. However, it doesn't mean they shouldn't suffer the ramifications from, so should we separate the value of the art from the artist? but that doesn't give them a free pass in their career.
1: Not at all. And I I didn't honestly know the answer, so I spoke to a philosopher, which was just, I love talking to philosophers because they always remind you you know nothing about anything. (laughs) Um, And he pointed out that if you are doing important work, like scientific works, either economics or like hard science, and you're on the verge of really making the world important. It's actually the more the the pressure on you to behave well is even higher. That's right. Because you're letting down, especially no good work happens alone. You're letting right. down everyone's effort, and it's you know not everyone gets the opportunity and resources to perform research like this. And so, if you're threatening it with your behavior, it actually you should be held to an even higher standard.
2: So the question is, according to the philosopher, then once this bad behavior is identified do you stop the person from doing research or do you just put a higher level of hr scrutiny in and sit that person down and say you were putting millions of people's lives at mm-hmm. risk because you're this close to a cure for cancer and if you can't keep your hands off your research assistant here's what's going to happen i mean how do you how do you resolve that
1: well he was more in favor of just jettisoning them i i I, you know, jettisoning the assistants. No, the the researcher. Um, right. But I don't, The philosopher said, "Just fire the guy." Yeah, he's or like whoever it is. Yeah, he's like we need we need to have standards. And you know, as he said, you know, yeah, we might have, we might have a longer wait before a cure for cancer. But he's like, but what about the behavior he did all along? Maybe someone would have come up with a cure for cancer even earlier. Right. And he discouraged them. Right. And maybe we'd have had a cancer cure for cancer 15 years ago. His
2: behavior. So so you can't use that as an excuse. Bad behavior has to be punished because you don't know what sort of uh, – That's the I love a, a classic <laughs> counterfactual, and that, that's a perfect one. Um, last one uh, before we get to our favorite questions. Actually, there are two here that are fascinating. Um, let's start with this one. Are millennials the wealthiest generation?
1: They could be. I think, you know, I'm tired.
2: Eventually, maybe. But today, they certainly don't feel that way. Well,
1: I'm a life cyclist, right? right. So when I think about wealth, Is I'm that like Peloton. Yeah. A life cycle. I think about all your assets. So uh, I think of human capital, which in Life cycle economics is the value of your future earnings. Right. So for me the idea that people don't that millennials don't own houses and instead they have student debt doesn't seem to me like they've made a huge investment in their future earnings. Right. And education it's not perfect is correlated with much higher lifetime earnings.
2: True, but the issue that they've appropriately raised you're at NYU it's the most expensive tuition in America, mm-hmm. $63,000 or something insane a year. Um I went to a state school. I went to Stony Brook. Mm-hmm. My tuition was four fifty a semester. Even today, it's like five thousand a semester, which seems like a bargain. Um students today are paying prices for education that are just so vastly out of whack with what they were like forty, fifty, sixty years, or even twenty five years ago. It was much, much cheaper relative to the total cost of living to go to school. so, are they going to get the same return on their investment in education or have things just completely run amok?
1: Well, definitely they're getting uh, – well, it's hard to say. I mean, we can't predict the future. I mean, so far it does seem – I mean, I'm not sure if there's much value in going to a $60,000 school over Stony Brook. Probably you're you're going to do just as well going to a good public school.
2: P.S. I couldn't get into Stony Brook today mm-hmm. with my grades back then I was in a little bit of the valley between the boomers and the Gen Xers and the same thing with grad school. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get into grad school uh, with to my grad school uh, YU that I got into way back when. so some of it's just dumb luck when you're born, but the other aspect of it is what um what sort of return are 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 these current graduates? What should they expect going forward? Explain why you say potentially they're the wealthiest generation.
1: Well, I think when people look at the outcome from education, they are too short sighted because you don't often, like, I mean, I didn't enter the labor market, like, really officially until I finished grad school. I was almost 30. Right. And my earnings, well, actually, my first job was unpaid, um, you know, weren't that great. But when you're looking, when you think of the payoff from human capital, it's your lifetime earnings. Right. And often, out of school, you're going to earn less than someone who you know didn't go to college. But the trajectory of your earnings is, follows a much steeper path.
2: So they've they've been working for a few years. They have a series of raises. You're starting out below them. But you're going to, as a college or grad student, you're going to accelerate way past them.
1: And you also face less risk. I mean, the unemployment rates for college grads is much, much lower.
2: I'm sensing a theme with you. <laughs> I don't know what it is. So I only have you for another 10 minutes. Let's jump to my favorite questions. These are what we ask all of our guests, um, tell us the first car you ever owned,
1: year, make, and model. Well, I've never actually technically owned a car, but uh-huh. in high school I did drive an '84 Honda Prelude. Okay, I love that car. Oh, it last. It went 200,000 miles, which in the '90s was a really big deal. That
2: was a little two-seater. They were. You yeah. Couldn't you couldn't destroy them? Oh, it wasn't the fastest car in the world. You could get them with a stick shift, huh? which was nice back then. That, it was it, a stick shift. Oh, there you go. So you drive. By the way, today I call stick shifts millennial anti-theft devices because <laughs> that's what they effectively are. So what's the most important thing we don't know about Allison Schrager?
1: Um, well, you wouldn't know it from the book title, but I'm just really a risk nerd. I mean, I guess I don't know if that's not surprising.
2: Um, no, that's not a shocker. Mm-hmm. I You read the book and it's like, this is, it should say... Allison Schrager, comma, PhD, risk nerd. Uh-huh. So that, that's not a big surprise that you think of yourself as a risk nerd. Maybe that's a surprise.
1: Well, I guess I also, I wasn't always, like in college, I had a dr- job in Alaska selling incense.
2: Incense in yeah. Alaska. Uh-huh. Why would they need an incense in Alaska? Is there that much? You would think of, if anything smells like the great outdoors. What was a fishing village? Oh, say no more. Yeah, <laughs> that's, very, that's very funny. So I know the answer to this, but I have to ask, who were your early mentors?
1: Obviously, Bob Merton.
2: So tell us a little bit about what he taught you, because he's clearly a fascinating uh, and storied person.
1: Well, he just taught me finance, which, you know, I went to, I did an econ PhD, so it wasn't like I wasn't exposed to it. But my program, it was very empirical. So I just thought financial economists just crunch data is looking for deviations of the efficient markets hypothesis. And I thought it was not very interesting and sort of corrupt. But then when I met Bob and learned what financial theory was, it really turned me on to theory too, in a way I I was always much more empirically oriented, of how to think about the world and how to see the world in terms of a a risk lens and how to see risk problems everywhere and how they're driving all markets, not just financial markets.
2: So he was really like your postdoc work.
1: He was. It was a very sort of a long, intense postdoc. I had good training as an as a graduate student too, but it sort of readied me to really fully embrace all of his lessons.
2: So let's talk about investors and others who influence the way you look at the world of risk. who Who do you consider to be um, important thinkers uh, that affected the way you perceive the world? Um, investors. Investors or or anyone really. You mentioned Peter Bernstein, who who affected the way. You perceive um, the world of risk.
1: Certainly, Peter Bernstein also, I mean, said I worked at DFA for a number of years. Ah. So uh, David Booth, um, when did you work at DFA? Uh, two thousand ten to twenty thirteen.
2: Oh, so really that was in in fairly, they were already fairly developed and running hundreds of billions of dollars by then.
1: And it was, it was a great experience for me because I was working on a project that they were all very interested in. So every two weeks I would have these meetings with Gene Fama, Ken French, Merton, David Booth, and Eduardo Repetto who was the, um, <laughs> and we would just because we were having to calibrate this very complicated interest rate model I was working on and we would just debate the path of interest rates. And I learned that's where I learned a lot of my finance was just seeing obviously Gene and Bob go at it and, you know, with the influences of David Booth who's just a real market guy.
2: And this was pre uh, were you there when when Fama won the Nobel or was this before? I I think it was twenty
1: twenty fourteen? Yeah, something like that. So right before. Mm
2: Mm-hmm. Quite, quite, that's some collection of uh, mentors and influencers. It's interesting
1: because they're smart in such different ways.
2: Huh. So uh, we mentioned um, Against the Gods. What are some of your other favorite books?
1: Well, it had obviously anything Peter Bernstein writes, but I also just, I love memoirs. Really? Yeah.
2: Give us an example.
1: I, I love Just Kids by Patti Smith. I just read Educated, which I hate right loving popular books, but I really loved that. Who wrote Educated? Oh, is it Tara Westover?
2: Don't ask me. Yeah, that's, it's, it's that's just, outside of my. It's uh, just
1: it's just so beautifully written.
2: Oh no kidding! Mm? What what other memoirs have you read that really uh, resonated with you? By the way, I read two books on vacation. Yours was one of them, uh-huh. and then McCullough's, um, uh, The Wright Brothers was uh-huh. quite fascinating. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're interested in flight and or, um, that's really less of a memoir, more of a biography. All right, skip that. Uh, give <laughs> well, us one actually, more book. So you mentioned I, it, you mentioned. Two, mm-hmm. um, hit, hit us with the third. By the way, this is the question. I get more email about this question. What was that book the person I'd mention on? I get more email about this than anything else. It's a
1: stressful question because I feel like it's so personal and revealing. Yes. Um, and, That's what makes it so good. And especially because I read a lot of crap because, you know. Do you finish crappy books? You know, when I was doing book research, I, I had this idea that Chris Jenner was this risk mastermind because look at what she's built. Right and I so I read her biography thinking maybe I'll include her and it turns out she didn't have a good risk strategy so I couldn't um,
2: right place right time is that all it
0: was she
1: takes advantage I mean right. and, and it's like this extreme level of diversification where she literally any opportunity that comes her way she seizes on it and she does work hard but there's nothing like strategic it's sort of or if it's sort of as well like a Donald Trump thing it's like well if this blows up I have something else to distract people with because I've got 90 <laughs> gazillion things going so it's like we have a debit card that rip poor people off but oh look here's a sex tape you You know, so, but I I remember I was reading her book on the subway, and I had this realization like I've never read Anna Karenina, but I've read this.
2: Um, I'm gonna say you probably picked the wrong one of the two. Yeah. Just Mm -hmm. just hypothesizing. Um. All right. So here's here's a question that also is uh, personal and probing. Tell us about a time you failed Mm -hmm. and what you learned from the experience. And by the way, you detail some personal failures. Oh in the yeah, book. I fail a lot. You, you don't you don't shy away from that.
1: <laughs> no, I mean my first year of grad school, I think I failed almost all my comps. I mean, largely because I was doing a quantitative PhD with no math background. Right. Um, and it was the hardest failure I've ever gone through because it was the biggest intellectual achievement I'd ever done, which is I taught myself six years worth of math myself in my free time, my first year of grad school, I never intellectually had grown so much from anything. I'd never achieved so much. And I still, you know, at the end of the day, you're still taking a math exam and you're being judged against Korean math champion. No matter how much math you learn quickly, you're not going to stack up, so you're going to fail.
2: Meaning the Mm -hmm. rest of the student base was hardcore math people.
1: Yeah, and I was just reading math textbooks in my free time, which wasn't all much. I wasn't sleeping. I was just reading working through entire math textbooks to try to do my homework
2: that sounds horrible
1: and yeah it was horrible i was such an unhappy person i kind of started developing weird social tics and then i went through all of this never slept for a year just working through math textbooks and i still just failed everything and i mean that was obviously just i was devastated
2: i'm gonna blame the lack of sleep because that affects cognitive functioning
1: you know and it was like i had time to you get to retake them and when i got to finally rest and have all that knowledge should have marinate in me. I realized how much I knew. And I mean, I think you, you, what I learned from that experience is, you know, if you really want something, you know, I mean, there's a point you have to cut cut loose. Right. Is you just, you you can't take the first failure because, you know, no one remembers that you failed your first year exam. All they remember is that you graduated.
2: Huh, that, That's an interesting observation. So now let me ask you the flip uh, question. What do you do for fun? What do you do when you're not Failing math exams. I play bridge. Really? Yeah. My mother plays bridge. My wife plays bridge. This has become like a giant thing now.
0: I'm
1: part of this great bridge group of all these intellectuals. There's a field medal winner Last at the last one. Uh-huh. But mixed in, but it's just a very humble, low-key group.
2: Huh. Really quite quite interesting. Um, what are you most excited about in the future direction of the risk industry?
1: I think technology. Yeah. I mean, everyone else is sort of scared of it, but I think it's going to sort of take us to some interesting places.
2: Interesting. I, I don't necessarily disagree. Um, uh, So if a millennial or recent college student came up to you and asked you for career advice about going into economics, risk, or academia, what, what sort of advice would you give them?
1: Find the smartest person you can and attach yourself to them.
2: It's funny you say that. That was my father's advice to me when I went to grad school. Did it work? um more or less actually it began as joining track in high school mm-hmm. find the fastest guy keep up with him and then when i went to grad school he said hey remember the advice i gave you about track i'm going to give you the same exact advice find the smartest and i'm like dad i'm way ahead mm-hmm. of you i already i already had had thought about that so how does that manifest itself for a, a millennial or, or a college graduate, how, how would they actually go about doing that?
1: Well, when you're in a job, I said find the smartest person in the room and it should never be you um, right. or there's something wrong um, and try to get them to mentor you and be open to it. And, you know, anyway, contrary to all these perceptions of millennials being know-it-alls, I find that the millennials I work with are always looking to learn.
2: Um, Maybe I've just been lucky. I don't know if know-it-alls is the right uh, right description. They're definitely hard working and mm-hmm. they have areas that they have great strengths in and and I think mm-hmm. the the biggest knock is their weaknesses they're not interested in working on yeah um, but I, I think they've gotten a bad having worked with them mm-hmm. for five years in in a firm, uh, do you think they've gotten a bad rap?
1: Yeah, I think they're the same as every other generation. You get some noisy outliers, and I think with social media, the noisy outliers' voices are amplified.
2: That's a great observation. But I think
1: on average, they're just like everyone else.
2: That, that makes perfect sense. Um, although they're, they grew up in such a unique, like think about what you grew up in and then what people born 10 or 20 years after you growing up in. Technology is this thing that's kind of cool on mm-hmm. the side. They're immersed in it from birth. It's a whole different uh, headspace.
1: Yeah, I mean it's just very different. I think mean, their brains probably form differently to some degree, but again and again, I think ultimately even college students, the ones I've interacted with from teaching, are also really open to debate and new ideas and even uncomfortable ideas. Huh. Again, it's just the noisy outliers.
2: That, that's that's quite fascinating. Um, and our final question: What do you know about the world of risk and economics today that you wish you knew fifteen, twenty years ago when you were just graduating?
1: Well, that's when I was starting grad school and, you know, I chose macro and macro traditionally has not incorporated risk at all. I didn't realize how fundamental that it was to the economy. I thought, you know, I was studying sort of either the the neoclassical Keynesian or new Keynesian models where, you know, if you do government spending, this is what happens. Where if I was doing finance, I would think of how does that impact markets? What are the range of things that happens? So I, I wish... I knew about risk because I didn't really.
2: So Matt, I'm I'm shocked to even hear that. I don't have an economics background. Mm-hmm. It's just uh, I play an economist on TV. How How is it possible that macroeconomics does not incorporate any analysis or study of risk? That seems shocking.
1: It, it is actually, you know, people don't talk about this because other things get attention. But I just went to a conference two or three weeks ago that Lars Hansen and Andy Lowe put on about how can we incorporate finance into macro? How can we put risk into macro models? And I think this was, amongst academics, the big takeaway from the financial crisis, that a lot of macro models have no meaningful role for financial sector, so how are you gonna even capture systemic risk? So this is really where like hardcore economists, they've been working on post-crisis, mm-hmm. and it's it's a hard problem because any economic model has to make choices, and once you bring risk in, they get more complicated. This is a controversial thing to say. I mean. Not going to sound sexy to most people, but to a, con- to a small group of economists, is I now feel strongly, although I don't think anyone agrees with me, that finance, basic finance should be part of basic economics training because it is such a fundamental part of understanding how the economy works.
2: Meaning basic finance plus an understanding of risk.
1: Well, yeah. Well, you, you, you get a basic understanding of risk if you learn finance because right. finance is all the principles of risk because finance and economics is just how f- economists study risk. It just uh-huh. happens to be in financial markets because that's where the data is. <laughs> so I think it should be you know, undergraduate macro-micro-finance.
2: Quite fascinating. We have been speaking to Allison Schrager. She is the author of An Economist Walks Into a Brothel, as well as co-founder of the Lifecycle Financial uh, Partners uh, and an adjunct professor at NYU and journalist at Quartz. Uh, If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, uh, Stitcher, Overcast, Bloomberg.com, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. We love your comments, feedback and suggestions Write to us at MIB podcast at Bloomberg.net. Be sure and go to Apple iTunes and give us a delightful review uh, for sharing all this time and information with you. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put together uh, these weekly conversations. Uh, Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.